Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim Marr. Today is episode 44 and we have our guest. He's actually a published author, Nicholas Sebastiani. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, sir. Sebastiani, you got it. All right. Awesome. Yeah. So um, we'll get into the book later, but yeah, he's a published author. We're going to get into that and pick his brain a little bit. So let's start off with um, when you were young, how was childhood? Did you have both parents? Yeah, I actually had a very normal childhood. I had both parents. There was rarely alcohol in the house. Um, I grew up, I had two brothers. Um, you know, alcoholism wasn't a thing when I, when I was growing up. Um, my parents were both teachers. Um, I was into sports. I was in the high school band. And uh, I just had a normal childhood. Everything was, everything was good. So um, graduated from high school on time. I went to college and uh, that's when things started to get a little squirrely. But yeah, growing up, I had both parents, um, no trauma to speak of. And uh, things, things were great when I was a kid. That's awesome. I mean, good for you. I was just saying to somebody that, you know, like I said, this is episode 44. So I've done a lot of interviews and also for the book I'm writing. Um, and I would say literally about 95% of the people have some type of trauma. Yeah. It, I it's can imagine. really, it's such a high number. I, it sounds like I might be exaggerating, but I'm telling you, you're one of maybe like three people that said that. Yeah. Ever. You know, I find that, I don't find that surprising. Um, a lot of the, the therapy that I've been through, um, you know, the therapist will ask, have you been through trauma? And I'll say, not necessarily, not, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't have any significant trauma. So nothing, nothing really to point to or to speak of with respect to, um, you know, root cause of addiction or anything like that. I so see you, you sounds like you thought this out. A little bit. Yeah. I've, I've been uh, doing a little research over the years. Okay. So you said your college years is kind of when things got a little uh, fuzzy. What you was know, happening um, that? Yeah, so my partying wasn't all that um, extreme in college, but when I drank, um, I drank everything. I mean, when I partied, I partied hard. I would party until I blacked out. Um, I was an, a long-distance runner in college. I ran competitively for um, a small college called Westchester University. So I was uh, I was in really good shape all throughout my college years. My 5K times were at 16 minutes. I ran the 10,000 meter on the track and I ran marathons. So I was a really good athlete, but, um, you know, I would still drink to excess when I drank. It's just that I didn't drink that often. So my college years, you know, I wrote about uh, some of my college, well, my college years. I wrote about that in my book. Um, there's a chapter dedicated to it. And well, you said it, it wasn't every day. How often would it be every other day? How many times a week do you think? Just on the weekends, really. Just on totally the um, weekends. I, yeah, I would run competitively on the weekends. And after after a race or something like that, we'd get myself and my track teammates would go out and party. And um, things got out of hand on occasion, uh, as they do in most college campuses, I'm sure. But uh, in my case, you know, I was I was a pretty damn good endurance athlete with um, a taste for with a taste for booze. Yeah. So my college years were relatively uneventful with the exception of a few major incidents, but um, my drinking to excess routinely didn't really get started until I was about my early to mid twenties. Was there something that kicked it off? 
I would say uh, genetic predisposition to it. Okay. Um, I, uh, I was married and, and had a child when I was really young. I was 22, 23 when I had my first son. And um, I, I feel as though just the pressure of life of trying to provide for a family at such an early age um, caused me to want to take that stress reliever in the evening that, you know, that drink, but it wasn't just a drink for me, it was a six pack. And then it would, you know, it had progressed over the years. But um, one thing that I, I will point to is in my 20s, my early 20s, you know, I got married so young, I didn't get that partying out of my system, I feel like, you know, all my buddies were still carrying on and partying and drinking and having a good time. And I was raising a kid. And, um, and that was of my own doing. I'm not complaining about that. But um, I just hadn't gotten it out of my system, whereas my buddies had. Right. Yeah. So uh, in my early 20s, I, I, as the pressure increased on me to provide for a family, my drinking to excess got more and more um, heavy and, and more frequent as time went on. To the point where eventually I was I was drinking heavily daily. Did it correlate with anything happening? You know, you said that you would start drinking more. Was there anything happening in life that maybe you upped your dosage, so to speak? Yeah. Well, I had um, two careers. I was also an Air Force reservist, so I had that I had that additional responsibility um, on top of trying to provide for a family and you know be a good father, be a good husband, and. Um, and work a, a civilian career as well. Um, so I had two full-time jobs as and tried to raise a family. So just a lot of a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. But on the weekends, as I was going through two careers and trying to raise a family and everything, all my friends from the neighborhood, everybody wanted to party party with me. Um, you know, we have people over to our house on the weekends and and parties just would go until two in the morning and um i was usually the the one who was shit faced on the couch by eight o'clock in the evening but so i what i will tell you is that i kind of established a baseline for my alcoholism um at an early age you know the <clears throat> the level of alcohol intake just went like this in my 20s in my 30s and then in my 40s it just kind of skyrocketed but i can't point to anything and say, you know, this is the reason why I drank so much, or I had this on my mind, or I had this trauma as a child. I don't have that. Mine was just a, a slow, gradual increase um, of alcohol uh, consumption from my 20s through my 30s and 40s. And eventually it got to the point where I was in really, really bad shape. So, so when you were done with college, what does it look like as far as your life? Did you have a job lined up? Did you go to work? And was there anything that yeah. maybe, and once again, is there anything there that might have influenced your drinking? Because sometimes when you Pressure. think back about it, you might say, oh, I, it was my first job, so I was nervous. Maybe that's one of the reasons I drank too much my first night I worked or something along those lines. Yeah. You never know. No, I hear you. I, I think, um, you know, in a lot of the support groups that I'm in, I talk to a lot of other folks who are quote unquote professionals or they have uh, uh, very stressful jobs. They're executives. They may be doctors, lawyers. And a lot of the folks that I relate to at some of those support groups like AA um, will tell you that pressure, the pressure of life, the pressure of providing for a family and having a, a high stress career. Uh, in my case, I had a high stress civilian job and a high stress military job. 
um, both trying to manage those at the same time. And, and just that added level of pressure and stress with, you know, the threat of the constant threat of deployment to a combat zone hanging over my head, that, um, that just that thought of having to potentially go into, into combat, um, was on my mind all the time, especially after September 11th. So it Part was, of my uh, must've been scary as shit. It was scary. I trained to go into, into combat, um, for 24 years. Fortunately, I never did. I mean, I've, I've been on several deployments and things like that, but never into a combat zone. I'm lucky there. You know, I trained for all that, but I'm lucky there, but that constant threat, that constant, um, again, especially after September 11th, when we were fighting the terrorists, that constant threat of I'm trained, I'm hundred percent deployable. I could go at any, at a moment's notice and have to leave my family and my civilian job. That'll hang over your head pretty heavily. Uh, over yeah, the, the course feeling of, of just not knowing, you know, that not, feeling just, of the just feeling not of, knowing. Exactly. The feeling of not knowing and uh, constantly having that phone up to your ear, waiting for that phone call to, to have to go. Um, That'll provide uh, a, a civilian airman or a you know a reservist, someone who has a civilian job and a military career. That that does create a good deal of stress. Yeah. So it's all those things that I would point to, Jim, to, to tell you that um, it was just a it was just a maelstrom, a whirlwind of stress, pressure, um, raising a family and and being a professional and. Um, you know, being in the military, all that just kind of sucked me into that vortex. And the minute my drinking started to get bad on it, you know, it was the minute I was drinking on a daily basis. Um, my alcohol intake went from like four drinks a night to six drinks a night to eight to 10 to next thing you know, I was in, I was in it really bad. So um, all that really occurred during my 20s and 30s. So it does sound like there was stuff that correlated with your drinking. Yeah, there was. Um, again, it was just the pressure of trying to manage both jobs. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier genetic predisposition to it. I think there's a lot to be said there. Um, alcoholism ran in my family, or runs in my family. Uh, it goes back very deep, a number of generations. So I look back at some of the aunts and uncles that I've had and cousins and everything who are also alcoholic and I, I, I can't point to one thing or a number of things that, um, for example, trauma that they may have gone through, um, that caused them to be addicted. Mm. And I do have an aunt, aunt, or I'm sorry, I do have uncles that were in world war II that had PTSD that came back and, you know, they were, uh, struggling with alcohol, but, uh, I wasn't real close to them, but yeah, it does run in my family. I think the genetic predisposition to addiction really does play a huge part in um, in your life. You know, once you start getting into that rut of um, taking that substance, whatever it is, then it's just harder hard to pull yourself out of if if you're genetically predisposed predisposed to addiction. Do you think it's just like um, a gene that once you start it off or kick it off, it just takes over? Is that what you like? When you say genetics, you know, do you know what, how it, like you actually think of it? Yeah, that's a great question. That's, you know, um, I have a, a psychiatrist who is a world-renowned addiction psychiatrist, and I've asked him the same question. What does it mean to be genetically predisposed to addiction? And his answer to me was, 
you know, in the DNA, somewhere deep down inside in the DNA, there is, you know, there's that chemical imbalance or that chemical, um, a chemical imbalance is probably the best way to say it, that, you know, you and I can drink two drinks and we want to continue, right? We want to have that third or that fourth, that fifth, whereas the guy next to us, the normal person can drink half a drink and put it down and end up putting their cigarette butt in a half empty bottle of beer. Um, whereas you and I, the next day, we might be filtering out that, that beer through a coffee filter, trying to get what's left out of it on a Sunday morning. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Uh, oh, yeah. That's the difference. Genetically, I think that's the difference between a normal person, someone without an addiction issue, and someone with addiction issues. Um, it's that genetic predisposition, I think, that is what caused me to develop this issue, to, to you know, become addicted as, as heavily as I was. But to point to something and say, what do you think genetically would cause that? I, I don't know that even the best psychiatrists or scientists in the world could come up with a good answer for that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, this is very true. This is very true. Yeah. It's a, that's, a, that's a deep question. It is really deep. It's a very scientific question, I think, and um, something that requires a lot more research. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that's one thing we don't have enough of is the science on this stuff. We need people to actually do the research. There's, there's, there's no cure to addiction, but there is better ways to go about stuff, I believe. And we're not. Yeah, there's so that. much help out there. Yeah, there's so much help, and we gotta make sure the big, the key thing is here is not just providing help; it's getting the right help for the right people at the right time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and. I think in my case, getting the right help was key. I, I sought help for so many years once I determined that I needed help. Um, I sought help through outpatient therapy, inpatient rehabilitation, AA, doctors, you name it. And I had to um, try out quite a few before I found the ones that actually hit the right nail in the head, the right groups, the right AA groups, and uh, the right doctors. So, yeah. Uh, it does take some trial and error for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I know about that too, going surfing for doctors. Yeah. In a good way, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's good stuff out there like um, what did I use? It'll come to me after, but it's it's something that you just go to there, type in your insurance, type it, um, type in your what you're looking for and the reason you're looking for it, and it just hooks you up with a doctor. Zocdoc. Yeah. Not to make a commercial for them, but it's called ZocDoc. It was very cool and made it nice and easy for me. That's, I just remember doing that. And it's to this day, if I need a doctor, I do that. ZocDoc. Well, maybe if there's a, a number of listeners out there who are in the process of trying to find a good addiction psychologist, yeah, that's why I psychologist or psychiatrist. Yeah, perfect. That's a, that's a great, um, that's a great uh, you know, thing to, to mention for sure. Yeah, it's a great tool. Yeah. So... What did you do for a living when you got out of college? Yeah, so I work in the field of occupational health and safety. Um, my job is basically to ensure OSHA compliance. Uh, I worked in pharmaceuticals for 20 years, and um, I was on an emergency response team. So essentially, I was an industrial firefighter for a while. Um, but uh, being in the field of occupational health and safety, if I don't do my job, the consequences of that are somebody could get hurt or killed if I'm not doing my job, if I'm not ensuring safety. And um, 
so I did that on my on the civilian side, but on the military side, I was a bioenvironmental engineering technician. Did that for 20 years in the military, and I had a, a similar role. I was in emergency response, occupational health and safety, and um, a field called industrial hygiene, which is basically ensuring that uh, the worker has a healthy and safe place to work. So you can imagine being in pharmaceuticals and ensuring uh, the, the safe manufacturing of pharmaceutical products, and then being in the military, in the Air Force, and ensuring the health and safety of our uh, Air Force personnel, that can certainly cause a lot of stress, right? Again, if I don't do my job in those circumstances, then uh, then somebody can get hurt or killed. Yeah. So that's a lot of pressure. Um, also, being on an industrial fire department, um, in my mind, I had to play out every single scenario of what could happen that could result in a fire, an explosion, hazardous materials, incident, and overexposure to pharmaceutical ingredients. All those scenarios would run through my head, and that would just cause me to, to ruminate and consider what, you know, the what ifs, and that would, that would just be another source of, of drinking for me. You know, that would be another, another trigger. So that's what I did um, in my, that's what I've done up in, in my civilian career up until this point. I'm so now retired from the reserve. Real yeah. quick. So it's kind of like your when your mind gets raced and that's when you start wanting to use. Yeah, no doubt about it. Throughout the years, man, I'll tell you. Um, Cause I'm bipolar. I, my work so I have a brain that goes a lot and I used to do it to try and slow myself down. Uh, you're bipolar too. Yeah. Oh, you have bipolar yeah. as well? Yeah. So you know what I'm I talking am. about. I call it the fast brain when it just starts going. Yep. Hypomanic. Yep, exactly. Yeah. I, I have it too, my friend. But um, yeah, so that's what would cause me to, to that, that trigger would cause me to drink. You know, the thought of, of what could happen if I don't do my job, somebody could get hurt, the factory could blow up, that sort of thing. And over the course of you know a couple of decades, that just took its toll on my drinking, that high stress work environment. That was one trigger. I had many. What are, some other, what are some other triggers you had? Yeah, other triggers I had were um, were domestic triggers. I'll call them. You know, the triggers um, associated with raising a family and trying to be a good husband. Um, I don't know if you're married or what your family situation is, but. Um, you know, in my case, I was, I'd been married, I was married at 22 and, um, it's, it's a very early age to try to raise a family and, and be a good husband and that sort of thing. So the stress of marriage, the stress of raising a family and putting food on the table and putting shelter on a, over everybody's heads, um, was a trigger for me as well. I took it very, very seriously as, as we should, you know, as, as fathers and husbands, but in my case, my, my, um, relief from that stress and that pressure was to drink uh yeah. but i also was i also was a runner i ran marathons and ran competitively for a long time and here recently my running stopped i would say about five to six five or six years ago my running stopped because my body couldn't handle the pounding of, of running anymore well when my natural detox process stopped the alcohol would stay in my body and mind for days or weeks on end. I didn't have that natural detox process to flush all that ethanol out of my system. So and that's when the alcoholism manifested. So it would literally stay in your system, continually giving you a buzz. 
and well, not necessarily that, but um, for example, if I would, let's just say I would have 12 drinks okay. um, on a Saturday night uh, under normal circumstances, I'd go out the next day and I'd run seven miles, let's say, and I would flush it all out. When the running stopped, my body couldn't handle the running anymore. I didn't have that outlet to process the alcohol. So the, the, I, I say the body, the alcohol would stay in my body and mind for days or weeks on end, but that's how it felt to me. I couldn't get rid of um, that feeling of, of being hungover or that feeling of, of having been on a bender for weeks. Whereas before, while I was running, I could flush all the alcohol out of my system the next day and just keep on going. I could do it all over again the next night. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yep. So um, back in my early 40s is when my running began to stop and or slow down and, and the alcoholism really manifested then. So how did, like throughout your 20s, how did this affect your, your day-to-day life? Yeah, so it's a great question. I say it didn't have much of an effect on me, but I could have been so much better as a, as a father, as a husband, as an employee, um, as an airman in the, in the reserves. Um, you know, I, I say everybody has heard the term functional alcoholic. Well, I don't believe in that term. I, I, I like to say less functioning alcoholic. You know, we're as alcoholics who, who happen to be able to function or hold a job or do the things that normal people do. Um, we may be functional, but we're not high functioning. Yeah. Um, so it, it affected me uh, to the point where, you know, I was, I was just dull. I, I was, I was not a very sharp, um, sharp person. In my twenties, I, my, my alcoholism hadn't manifested to the point where it caused me tremendous problems. But as the years went by, my functionality, let's say, would go that had gone down right as the alcoholism went up the functionality went down and in my 30s my job performance got a little worse the stress levels got higher my uh my functionality got less and less um i became a lot slower um up until the point where in my mid 40s you know just a few years ago when i was really trying to um get sober i could barely hold a job and the alcoholism had taken its toll on me to the point where I was missing work. Um, I had I had been forced to retire from the Air Force because I had a DWI in uniform. Um, so my drinking had progressed to the point where I was drinking daily. I was drinking uh, before work on the job. So um, so in the military, out, just one time and you're out in the military. Well, in my case, I was a first sergeant the last four years that I was in. And as a first sergeant, you have to set the example for the troops, right? But did you, um, do you, they didn't give you a second chance though? Well, that's, that's a good question. I had my retirement papers already in, in oh, okay. let's say se- September of 2017, I had submitted papers for retirement and I had my DWI late September of 2017. So by December of that year, um, I was on a, on a course of, on the path to retirement anyway, but my retirement was kind of accelerated. And after my DWI, I was told that I I just couldn't come back and serve. So that was, that was the end of my reserve career, unfortunately. Yeah. But it seems like you had a, seems like you had a decent length, good stretch. I did high stress. um, But the functionality was far less than it could have been 
had I not been alcoholic during these times. Yeah. Right. So as you get a little bit older, have you like, so at, at what point did it really affect your life? Like, cause you know, a lot of us unfortunately have to hit rock bottom and yeah. we, all, we all have a story of like, Oh, most of us, I'm assuming I should say, I don't want to say all of us have a story where we, we recognize this was my low, low point. This is when I hit the concrete floor and the basement yep. level, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's you? all that, that, that instance for me was right after my second DWI. Um, I had my first one in, in July of 2017. Um, I'd been fighting, trying to stay sober for about six months. I'd, I'd really made the commitment to try to quit. In during all this, your wife knew? During all this, your oh, wife knew? Well, okay. Yeah, she was supportive. Um, but I, it was it was July of 2017, I got my first DWI. And then September of 2017, I got my second one. So having two DWIs in the course of three months really drove me to my rock bottom. And um, I can remember the feeling that I got when I arrived at rehab for round two of rehab a few days after my second DWI, I remember standing out in front of the rehab, just looking down the street going, this is it. I found my rock bottom. Um, my thought was I was, I was so messed up. I was alcohol had had its claws in me for such a long time that um, I was so messed up. I wasn't sure that I wanted to go through another detox and another rehab. So my thought process at the time was, okay, I've hit my rock bottom. Do I run away from it and escape from this rehab? Or do I turn my ass back around, go inside the rehab, go through the 30-day treatment process, and then really fight and fight and fight to try to get sober? Um, but yeah. my rock bottom was after that second DWI. And that's really Yeah, I happened to crash. I, I crashed my car. I was drunk as hell during that, uh, during that time. And it was just I'm a really bad I did scene. the same thing. Well, how, yeah, how, we, what kind of accident was it? Did anybody get hurt? I got hurt. Uh, God, thank God I didn't hurt anybody in the process. But it, my story was that I'd been drinking all day in uniform. Um, I had just come back from uh, a rehab a few days before that. I was in a rehab in Georgia. I left early. Uh, didn't even make it home before I started drinking again. Hmm. And then three days, three days later, I was uh, coming back from work in, in uniform having been drinking all day. And, um, I ran off the side of the road and into a ditch. I blacked out at some point. And, um, I'm lucky that I didn't go into a pond and drown. I actually hit a ditch and that kind of prevented me from going into a pond, but, um, I didn't, I didn't hurt anybody other than myself. And, um, thank God for that. But, um, but that was my rock bottom, Jim. What kind of damage did you do to yourself? I had, um, broken ribs, uh, concussion, uh, just busted up, you know, from the airbag going off and from the from the collision into that ditch. I had, I had a hematoma the size of a softball on my left leg. I thought my leg was broken, but um, this hematoma was enormous. It was on my left shin. Didn't yeah. go away for months. In fact, I still have a big scar from it. But those are my injuries. And, you know, for anybody listening, um, if you're struggling with alcohol, if you're struggling with with addiction, the last thing you need to do is get behind a wheel. Right. Yeah. The last thing you need to do is get behind a wheel because it's not only can you hurt yourself and, you, and ruin your career, you can ruin your life, you can ruin a lot of things, but you can kill somebody else, as you know. And 
man, that's to me, that's that's as rock bottom as rock bottom gets right there. Yeah, and a lot of us, we all think that we're that one different person. Oh, I can drive while drinking. It's not a big deal. There's always that yeah. one person, and it's a shame because that's the person who gets into the accident. That's right. And we all heard, I've heard horror stories. We all, probably some of us have been in those situations. But um, in my case, you know, I, <clears throat> my rock bottom was um, after having crashed my car and uh, almost killing myself in, in that instance. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was a long way up from there, but, um, but yeah, that was my rock bottom. So once you hit your rock bottom, what was your, what, what did you actually do? Did, did you go and find yourself a rehab? Like what was your actually like your course of action? Course of action. So in the, in the book that I wrote, um, I write about having a treatment plan, a post-treatment plan. Once, once we leave rehab, I had been to um, four rehabs spanning 2017 and 2018. Um, my rock bottom was in late 2017. So I'd continued to, you know, to go, to, go through inpatient treatment, outpatient treatment, um, AA, I had a sponsor and I was working all the steps. Uh, so I was doing all the, the right things that I needed to do, but I had relapsed so many times until December the 7th of 2018, my sobriety date, I relapsed so many times that it just, my, my struggle to climb out of that hole, you know, out from my rock bottom was, um, was, was pretty severe. I had a pretty, um, pretty crazy climb up from that rock bottom. If, um, if that makes sense, but, um, so that, you know, inpatient rehab, outpatient rehab, AA and, um, getting a sponsor and working the steps. That's basically what my post-treatment plan was coming out of rehabs and how did that work for you pretty good um again you know with the multiple relapses it, everybody's different you know we all walk our own journey through sobriety yeah. but um you know having having to go through four rehabs in the span of about 18 months uh that was frustrating um so anybody listening you know if, if the first one doesn't take then uh try try again you know um Inpatient rehab is not for everybody, but uh, it, it worked for me after the fourth time. Unfortunately, I had, had to go through four, but hmm. I finally got it. Um, I, I'd been to through three intensive outpatient programs and uh, switched sponsors once, worked the steps probably 10 times. After I get through the 12th step, I'd go back to step one and do it and do them all over again. And my sponsor would tell me, well, you know, that way you won't, uh, you won't forget where you came from. If you go back to step one and, and reaffirm to yourself that you, your life had become unmanageable. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. That's a huge yeah. step. It's the building block on which all the other steps are going to rest upon. You know what I mean? It's step one. Yeah. I was in a meeting last night and um, we had a newcomer. Uh, young guy come in and, and say, yeah, he was there for the, for the first time, his first AA meeting. And um, the cool thing about being in a meeting when there's a newcomer is that everything goes back to that foundation, the, the conversation and the topic goes back to that foundation, the building blocks, right? Yep. Step one is the building block to doing the rest of the steps. You're and totally you're, right. 
yeah, if you're subscribing to the AA philosophy, then step one is where you build your sobriety from. So you're exactly right about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for anyone, like I said, we have our own 10 steps and it's the same thing. It's, I call it the foundation upon which everything rests. You know, it's a, it's a big deal being able to admit that you have an issue, you have a problem that you need help. Right. And if you're questioning that about yourself, you're not going to be successful in your attempts at sobriety. You have to admit that to yourself. If you know you're in a position where you need help, then admittance, or I should say admitting to yourself that you do have that problem, that's going to be key in your recovery. Yes, because unless you technically diagnose the problem and say, this is what I need to work on, it's not going to get better. So that's why admitting it kind of makes you see, okay, this is an issue. I need to correct it, whether it be drugs or compulsive you know, gambling or things like that. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, addiction is a progressive disease. So admitting in step one that you have a problem and that your life has become unmanageable, that stems the tide of addiction, in my opinion. That's what stemmed the tide in my case. Um, it, it took me a while. You know, once I had admitted that I had a problem and that my life had become unmanageable, I kept digging for a while. I kept digging for months until I hit that rock bottom that I just mentioned. But um, when I started to pull myself up from that great big hole that I was in, it's that step one that, you know, admitting to myself that my life had become unmanageable and that I had a a drinking problem. um, I built my sobriety on that realization. And uh, until we have that, that self-realization, then, um, any attempt at sobriety, in my opinion, is is going to be a challenge. Yeah, it might be even um, destined to fail, you know. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, relapses occur. Failure is going to happen so often. It did with me. You know, I was a chronic relapser. So if you fail, keep trying, you know, try, try again. Um, yep. Yeah, that's all we can do. That's all we can do. Because giving up just is never the answer. It's just, there's, there's no, nothing in history where someone says, thank God I gave that up, especially if it's for a good cause. Yeah. So for, for people like you and I, Jim, um, there is no neutral in, with this disease. It's either get better or get worse. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. You, know? um, you said it until perfectly. we admit to ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Until we admit to ourselves that there's a problem and that our lives have become unmanageable. Um, things are going to get worse. That progressive disease is going to eat us alive. Alcoholism yep. or drug addiction or whatever other addiction we have. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned before that you got a book. So what's the book about? Let's get into that for a little bit. Yeah. My book is called the fun stops here. And the right. title of the book is kind of a twist on words. Um, if you think about it, you know, drinking and partying and carrying on, everybody has this notion that, you know, oh, you're an alcoholic, you must have been partying and carrying on and having fun and disregarding all your responsibilities and, you know, not raising your family, not providing um, for your family and and so forth. That's not the case. Yes, my, I partied when I was younger, and I had a good, good time with all my buddies and relatives and carrying on drinking and having a good time. But it got to a point where the fun stopped. And the fun actually began in sobriety. And my book is about that. Um, The first few pages of my book 
details how much fun I had in my sobriety. I wrote this book. I, I published it in April of last year, and it took me about two years to write. So during that time, um, I had rediscovered old hobbies like fishing, golfing, traveling, kayaking. Uh, I'm an avid backpacker. I backpack all, all across the country, and my book is has uh, a chapter dedicated to all my backpacking adventures and and the effect that alcoholism had on all that fun that I was supposed to have been having over the years while I was in active addiction. Turns out I wasn't having much fun at all. So again, the title is kind of a twist on words. The fun stops here. Not necessarily the fun stops. Um, I'm sorry. The fun starts in sobriety, right? Yeah, absolutely. Did in my case anyway. So tell us a little bit more about the not fun parts versus the fun parts. Yeah, so I go into detail in this book about my DWIs, about my four stints in rehabs and detox facilities. What I did, Jim, was I, I chronicled my time trying to get sober. I journaled every single day. And I, right when I got sober around the December the 7th of 2018, I, I began to go through all these old journals. And I thought to myself, well, what am I going to do with all these I got all this great information, all these tips and strategies for trying to get sober, all, all these things that I learned over the course of the last few years. What am I going to do with this information? Somebody could find yeah. this useful. So I wrote a book on it. And um, some of the not so fun parts involve things like being admitted uh, involuntarily to detox facilities five times. That's not fun. No. You know, um, I describe in, in colorful detail in the book what it's like to be in a detox facility and to be exposed to other patients who might be going through heroin withdrawals or um, crack cocaine withdrawals, um, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, we had some guy, he was throwing up so hard, you could just hear it from it, no matter where you went. Um, so, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're, you're next to guys that you don't know what they're going through. And sometimes it's it's a challenge to be able to make it through. You know what I mean? No, no doubt about it. Yeah. Detox is definitely a challenge. And I think that's one of the reasons why after a relapse, so many people find it so difficult to quit again, because nobody wants to have to go through that detox again. Um, some of the other not so fun parts in this book are um, being out in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness, right? On a on a backpacking adventure on this for example, um, my buddies and I went on a All right, looks like we lost him for a moment. Just get him back on the line. All right, I'm not going to end the recording, so give us a moment, folks, technical difficulties.
All right. Nicholas. All right, is, I'm back. Are you there? I'm still here. We are waiting for you. Hopefully our, our listeners are still waiting. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, technical difficulties, it looks like, but yeah. Pick up where we left off. Where did we leave off? I forget. Yeah. So I was, I was, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can, I can completely hear you. All right. Excellent. So I was talking about um, when I was out in the middle of nowhere, I was in the, on the Pacific Crest Trail. Actually, I was, I'll give you a better story. I was walking through the Grand Canyon, um, myself and six other guys, uh, on a two week long backpacking adventure. And I was in active addiction as this was late 2016. Um, right before I began my journey to get sober, this is about the time where I was at my worst. My active addiction was at its worst, you know, being in the wilderness for two weeks, you can only carry so much liquor with you. Um, so I was out there to have a good time and, and be with my brother and my, my buddies and hike the Grand Canyon for a couple of weeks when I was experiencing detox. And that wasn't fun. I was withdrawing. I was retching. I had the cold sweats, all the DTs you can possibly imagine. And I, because I, I just didn't have enough alcohol to, to satisfy me on this hike. What did the other guys say about this? Did they recognize that you were having issues? They recognized I was having issues. My brother actually was kind of side by side with me and he understood what was going on. And I you told him at the time. You told him. You told him yeah. about the alcohol. Okay. Yeah, he knew right away that I, he knew I was in bad shape. He knew that things had gotten far worse than I'd let on in the past. So um, the, uh, the fun that I mentioned is, you know, me hiking through the Grand Canyon, trying to enjoy this wonderful experience that I'd you know, prepared myself for and spent money on and uh, prepped my backpacking gear all for and everything. Meanwhile, I'm having withdrawal symptoms and DTs and, and I'm not enjoying this experience once, you know, for, for one minute. Whereas now being sober, when I go on a backpacking trip, I don't have to worry about bringing liquor in the woods. I don't have to worry about having withdrawals yeah. or DTs. You know, there's no liquor stores in the woods or in the mountains or in a, in the Grand Canyon. Um, so my, my hiking adventures are alcohol free and they're far more fun and exciting. And, um, again, I don't have to worry about withdrawals on my, on my experiences these days. Yep. And that's part of the good fun. The good that's fun. part of the good fun. That's right. So, um, again, the title of the book is the fun stops here and it's kind of a twist on words, meaning, you know, the fun starts in sobriety, the fun, the fun stopped and the consequences became way too much to bear. Um, way back several years ago when my uh, alcoholism progressed to the point where it had. All right. So is there anything else you wanted to talk about as far as the book went? Any other pitches or anything? Or yeah, any definitely. You're working on? Yeah, the book goes through my youth. Um, you mentioned earlier, you asked me earlier about my childhood. You know, I had a, yeah. a relatively normal childhood, um, but I, I do detail my childhood and, and the book is, is funny. Uh, it'll have you laughing like hell one minute and crying the next. It's okay. um, it's gut wrenching. It's brutally honest, and um, I think anybody who reads it, anybody who has a family member with addiction, anybody who is looking to get sober, trying to get sober, trying to stay sober, will benefit from this book. Um, there are tips and tricks. There are strategies for sobriety, and I think most of all when the reader finally puts the book down after the last page, they'll have a smile on their face. They'll have a much better understanding of addiction, not just alcoholism, 
but they'll also have an understanding of what it's like to get sober. So take a, take a struggling alcoholic, for example, if they pick up this book, they're going to laugh, but they're also going to be motivated to want to get sober. And they'll have the understanding at the end of the book on, on how they can best do that. So things like how to pick a trap, a proper treatment facility based on my experiences, how not to go to detox, um, because you were involuntarily committed, right? I yeah. talk about um, the right time to go to detox and get a medically supervised detox, a, a detox facility that's proper where you'll get the right medical treatment, not one that just locks you up in a, basically in a prison cell and tells you to, to stay there and withdraw for five days. Yeah. So, so the book is, is very interesting, but it's also intense and does go into significant detail on, um, you know, what, how, how to get sober and to stay that way. But mainly the book is about fun, right? About having fun in sobriety. I thought I was having fun all those years when I was carrying on and drinking and partying. Guess what? I wasn't. I was yeah. making myself much. I was making myself sick. That's what I was doing. So I've detailed what it's like to, to be sober a few years now and to have a lot of fun in my sobriety in the book. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah awesome. I'm definitely going to give it a read. Maybe have to send me an autographed copy. Be pretty Thanks, cool. man. I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, so I think that's all we got for today, folks. So here's my little sales pitch for us. If you can, go below to the bottom right, click on the, our logo, and it'll help you subscribe. Give us a like on the video. We are also available on Spotify, iTunes, Anchor, a few other programs, um, platforms, I should say. So check us out there. Give us a like. Also, go to our Facebook page. Give us a like and maybe a review if you like what you hear today. Um, and that's all I have. Until next time. And we're stopping.